Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. This is videocast number 45 and podcast episode 35 for the week ending August 28th, 2020. And as always, we'd like to start with uh, some of our media spots and some of the ideas we covered uh, where we kind of refine our thoughts and put it all out there in, in uh, short segments. So first, I'd like to thank Ellie Terrett for having me on the Liz Clayman countdown on Fox Business earlier this week. And the purpose of that segment was to talk about changes in the Dow, which is appropriate because one of our Ask Me Anything questions for the week is about just that subject. So um, the key thing I started with on the segment when Liz asked was that these changes are symbolic in that Main Street looks to the Dow Jones to get a sense of the economic health of blue chip America and the overall economy. But the majority of assets and retirement assets uh, in the country are indexed to the S&P 500, which is a better representation of the total economy. So this is largely symbolic, but when they make changes, it does catch a lot of attention. And um, the reason for the change is that Apple announced a four for one split, which actually went into effect after the close today and will be uh, reflected in trading on Monday. And that's when also the changes to the Dow will go into effect. And what that effectively did was it took the weight, Apple's uh, split took the weight of tech in the Dow from 27.6% weighting to 20.73% weighting. So the indexers had to find another tech stock to replace it and bring that weight up. What they did was they replaced uh, ExxonMobil with Salesforce. Uh, CRM is the ticker. And uh, the question that Liz asked me was, what, is that the, the stock you would have chosen? And I'm gonna go into that in a second, but basically what that change did was it took the tech weighting, which had fallen from 27.6 to 20.73, back up to 23.1% uh, due to the CRM change. Uh, what I told Liz was, uh, and she agreed, was that I'd probably shoot for Facebook because it had like a $750 billion cap relative to at that point, the CRM had a $185 billion cap. That went up after earnings, uh, which is, you know, not a great thing because it'll go into the Dow after it's already had this huge bounce off of earnings. But nonetheless, it is what it is. Um, and she asked, well, why didn't they put in Facebook? Because it's more of a blue chip at 750 billion, et cetera, and it's still growing at a healthy clip. And the reason is because of Mark Zuckerberg's voting control. I think he has about 57% of the voting stock and that complicates things when you put it in an index. So uh, that precluded them. And my second choice would have been because the other two replacements were um, Honeywell replaced Pfizer, I'm sorry, Honeywell replaced Raytheon Technologies and Amgen replaced Pfizer. Those were kind of one-for-one trade-offs of you know, large biotech for a large pharmaceutical and a large industrial for another large industrial. So those weren't as big of a shock as the Salesforce for ExxonMobil. Um, the other thing, that the reason I like Facebook and or Berkshire as choices, uh, Facebook generates three to four times more cash flow than Salesforce does. 
uh, but Berkshire has the same issue in that uh, it uh, Warren owns too much of the stock. I think about 30% of the stock. So that was the issue there. So that was the segment. I want to thank Liz Clayman and Ellie Terrett for inviting me on to the show. Uh, the next one we did was Yahoo Finance. And um, this was with Akiko Fujita. And I want to thank Sarah Smith for inviting me on. The purpose of this segment, which was much longer, was uh, also going to be addressed in one of the Ask Me Anything questions, which we're going to do early in the show this week, in the episode this week, versus we usually do it right at the end. And I want to address it early because they were really good questions. Um, in Akiko's uh, segment on Yahoo Finance, uh, she was basically asking about you know the uncertainties in the market and kind of where we were in the market. And I pointed to a couple of things. And this one, um, if you go to the site here, you should watch the full clip directly on the Yahoo Finance site versus the YouTube here because they actually have closed captioning and it has all the words. It's pretty, pretty impressive how they do it. Um, but I'll cover some of the highlights here and then we can move on. Uh, in the Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey last week, which we have on our website, uh, the summary of it, you can just uh, go to the search bar over on the right side here and just put in Bank of America Survey and it'll come up. Um, the top four worries of managers, uh, uh, 200 managers that manage about a half a trillion, Number one was a second wave of COVID. 35% of managers were afraid of that. We got some really good uh, news and, well, news slash rumors. The news was about the convalescent plasma, which the uh, FDA commissioner was, was very enthusiastic about. The rumors were that the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine could be pushed up all the way to October. So the market was very uh, optimistic on that early in the week. So that was good news. Uh, the U.S.-China trade war was the second worry last week in the survey amongst managers at 19%. There was reported on Tuesday a positive call between Lighthizer, Mnuchin, and the Chinese that they were moving ahead with the purchases. Their ag was okay, but their uh, energy had fallen behind and they committed to picking up the pace on that. So that, that's a, a positive thing. Uh, the third risk, biggest tail risk, was the U.S. election. We've covered that in recent weeks. Um, that landscape has changed pretty dramatically in the last week and a half. But the biggest risk was a blue sweep. Uh, and it was, you know, not from an ideological standpoint, because this is a stock market uh, and economic podcast videocast. But from the standpoint of uh, the Democratic platform was to increase the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28 percent along with capital gains rates, etc. And the math, David Costin over uh, at Goldman Sachs had done a note that said it would take $20 of earnings off the S&P 500, which we had calculated uh, with a lower multiple because of slower growth, would have uh, <clears throat> led to potentially a 30% correction in the stock market and into people's retirements until the midterms when that could be rectified. So, um, that is uh, less of a risk than it was. And finally, 13% uh, of managers were afraid of a credit event. We now know we have ample liquidity. We have the Fed at our back, as we saw on Thursday with all the speeches. So yes, there will be defaults, but the amount of money supply 
will far exceed the level of defaults that we're going to see in coming years. Uh, having grown M2 money supply by 25% in the last uh, since March, and people are always afraid, just as they were in 2009, with all the money printing, aren't we going to see massive inflation very quickly? And the answer is uh, not immediately. We, we certainly should see it down the road, year, two years, three years, four years out. Uh, but it won't be as pronounced or hyperinflationary as the alarmists would, would be worried about because at the same time you have money supply increasing, you will have debt write-downs, you'll have consumer write-downs, you'll have credit card write-downs, you'll have small business write-downs, you'll have restaurant loans, you'll have all these things which contracts money supply at the same time. So it's an offsetting type of mechanism that there should be more money supply, <coughs> money supply growth than default but not by the order of magnitude that would create a hyperinflationary type of period. So um, they'll, they'll be able to balance it. And if it gets out of balance, we have the tools to certainly rein in inflation um, as we saw with Volcker in the early 80s. Now, the other aspect is, you know, obviously the markets run now 50% off the bottom. And I was talking to Akiko, uh, despite that, there's still a tremendous wall of worry, as we saw in the survey, and that is seven, only 17% of managers expect a V-shaped recovery, 57% uh, expect profit growth in 2021, which we covered last week, <clears throat> and what's interesting was, you know, the pessimism was right before the inflection, um, managers saw the 10-year yield, 10-year treasury yield, trading at below 50 basis points by the end of 2020, which is a very pessimistic outlook. And sure enough, that was like effectively right at the inflection. And now yields have started to blow out in part due to the anticipation of Thursday's speech and then the speech itself. And we'll take a look at the yield curve and we'll take a look at uh, treasury yields in this episode. Um, the cash levels of institutional managers are at 4.6%, which is neutral. And the AAII sentiment survey, which we're going to cover in this week's um, note, is only at 32%. We, we would want to see bullish percent at over 40% before we got excessively worried. But there are other indicators that are contradicting that and saying things are getting a little frothy, and we'll talk about that as well. Um, and then finally was... You know, you've you we've talked about this, and we're going to get into it again today. Today, is the tech and growth versus cyclicals and value. When is that going to change? And that's also in the uh, ask me anything question we got this week. So we'll address that. But but a lot of it has to do with a vaccine, and and as you're seeing us get better news on treatments, better news on vaccines the case curve coming down. There's starting to be a little bit in, in the cyclicals. Again, we saw it early this month. We're seeing it in fits and starts this week, and I think that's going to con continue. And then when it finally turns, it's going to certainly be an abrupt tur turn, and people will be well rewarded for their patience. So, um, so that was that. The other example, <coughs> which we'll get into, is... Um, kind of the price movement relative to earnings movement in tech versus cyclicals. 
um, which is also going to tell the story of this rotation moving forward. So I want to thank uh, Akiko Fujita and Sarah Smith for having me on this week. Next, we had in Reuters on Monday, Meta Singh and Devik Jain. Thank you for including me in your article. Uh, they wanted to know, you know, what was going on. Why, why were people excited in the morning before the market uh, opened? And my quote was that everyone's focused on the same thing. That's eradicating the virus, whether it's through treatment, but preferably from vaccines. That's the key to unlocking the economy because all the stimulus aid and liquidity is there. We just have to enable people to get back to normalcy and the global economy can boom. And when I talk about boom, I'm talking about mid single digits nominal GDP. We're going to start to see with the amount of money supply as more and more people get back to work. And certainly once we have a vaccine and treatment, you're going to see you know, five, six, six and a half percent, maybe even up to seven percent nominal GDP in the next year, two years out uh, from all the stimulus that's been put into the system. And that's going to be very, very exciting. And it's also going to help bring down the debt to GDP levels like we saw post World War Two got up to 120 percent. They were borrowing massively to defeat, defeat a visible enemy. We've borrowed massively to defeat an invisible enemy, which is the virus. And how we will get those ratios back down in the case of 1948 to 1953, when it went from 120% uh, of GDP debt to GDP down to 63% within a handful of years, we'll probably have a similar outcome in a handful of years. It won't be because we got so fiscally responsible and started saving and paying down our debt. It will be because nominal GDP is going to grow dramatically. And, you know, rather than having uh you know 24 trillion dollars of debt on a 20 trillion dollar economy you may have 25 trillion dollars of, of debt on a 30 33 trillion dollar economy uh and um that that's how that will work itself out so thanks to medicine and devic jane and then finally i was asked to uh for a quote for bloomberg from devin pendleton thanks for having me in your article and also jack pitcher um, contributed to this article as well. And the headline was, you know, Bezos is worth 200 billion. Uh, Musk is worth 100 billion. Is it too much? And um, so they kind of contrasted me to Bernie Sanders, of which was really interesting. Never thought I'd be in the same article as Bernie Sanders, but uh, you live long enough, you see it all. So uh, basically, Bernie Sanders was saying, you know, uh, we can't continue to allow billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk to become obscenely rich. Um, and she was asking, uh, Devin was asking, you know, what, what were my thoughts? Um, the quote that she put in the article, uh, I'm going to give you the quote and then I'm going to give you the context because uh, it, it's, it's good. But basically what I said is when, when you look at Musk and Bezos, it's, understated to say that in their own ways they've changed the world. Uh, there's no question about it. So whether $200 billion or $100 billion is justified or not um, it is less material than the value that they've created. If you think of what's happened during the pandemic without Amazon, what, what would we have done if we didn't have people delivering this stuff to our doors 
And, you know, would the virus have grown faster if people had to go out more frequently to do shopping versus having it brought to their homes? So the, the world has changed in a lot of ways because of this. Um, you know, last week we talked about electric cars. You know, we had electric cars, 38,000 plus on the road in the early 20th century, and they were first invented, believe it or not, in the mid-19th century, which, which blew my mind. Uh, go back and review that if you want the details for that. But my, my general sense was, uh, as it relates to Devin, uh, Devin's question, is I was less interested whether they're worth $200 billion today or $100 billion today than I was about the value that they've created in the marketplace, number one. And number two, the marketplace will take care of it. And what I basically said was no one cared what, uh, no one cared about Jeff Bezos' wealth when the stock crashed 90% from 2000 to 2000 and a half, uh, 2001 and a half. So in a year and a half, he lost over 95% of his wealth from 2000 to 2001 and a half. Now, if you listen to interviews from Jeff Bezos, what you'll find during that period is that the underlying fundamentals of the business were continuing to improve. It's just the valuation of the stock applied to those underlying fundamentals um, normalized. In that period, the market was not willing to pay for decades worth of earnings in the present day. Uh, and the stock, stock price came down 95%, even though the business was fundamentally growing at a reasonable pace uh, throughout that whole period. So when I see things like this paper wealth of $200 billion or $100 billion, you know, maybe, maybe Bezos will go to $400 billion before the market says, no, we're not gonna pay you for 50 years of future earnings. Uh, or we're no longer going to buy the story that you can turn up the cash flows or web services will start to slow or margins will start to compress or something. And then all of a sudden, that paper wealth will either go from 400 billion to 100 billion or 200 billion to 50 billion. And we don't know when, but fundamentally, um, Bernie Sanders doesn't have to decide and stay up late at night to decide whether he should allow these billionaires to make the kind of money that they make or not. It's really not his place. It's up to the marketplace to decide whether these billionaires make their money or not. And right now the market is voting that number one, we believe you provide a tremendously valuable service to society. And number two, we believe that this uh, growth and value is going to persist indefinitely into the future. Invariably, what will happen is there will come a new period of sentiment where even if that value is there, the marketplace will no longer be willing to pay as much in terms of stock price for that value, or the value will erode. Uh, you know, you've seen 20 specs come out with electric vehicles in the last uh, three months, and another, you know, 15 SPACs probably in the pipeline that are going to say they're electric vehicles or battery companies just so they can raise money. And that's going to take away capital that could go into Tesla to continue to push up the price. I'm not short or long Tesla or short or long Amazon. I'm just saying Bernie Sanders doesn't have to worry about whether uh, Bezos or Musk have a high net worth because the marketplace will take care of it on its own. And sooner or later, either the marketplace will pay less for that forward earnings value or um, the value will erode, you know, and competition will take care of it. Uh, the other thing that you're seeing is, um, you know, in terms of tech companies, you know, 
antitrust case uh, against Google zeroes in on tying products. So, you know, you've got uh, Facebook in the crosshairs, you've got uh, Google in the crosshairs, you, you've got a number of, of uh, Amazon potentially in the crosshairs. And, you know, I've never really seen a company that uh, was forced to come in front of Congress and, you know, life got better for them and business got better for them in the coming years. Now, this could be the exception because, you know, uh, it is what it is, but um, and the amount of influence they have in Washington. But I think if you talk to Bill Gates and his story in Microsoft in 2000, he'll say uh, it's never good news when they start to call you in to talk, even if nothing happens immediately for the next 10 years, uh, your life of explaining yourself is, is going to have a cost. So. Uh, Bernie didn't even have to worry about it. It seems like Congress is there and, and you know, things may or may, or may not unfold in, in that way moving forward. So um, I think the uh, answer to the question for Devin's article is um, it, it really doesn't matter whether we think they're worth what their net worth says they are on paper. The marketplace will fundamentally work that out over time. Now, um, so thank you for including me in your article, Devin and Devin Pendleton and Jack Pitcher over at Barron's uh, at Bloomberg. Next, um, we have got the quote of the day, which is probably the context for this week, which is from Benjamin Graham, uh, Warren Buffett's mentor. The intelligent investor is a realist who sells to the optimist and buys from the pessimist. So uh, there are some probably uh, realists who are selling some or trimming some Amazon stock or Apple stock and selling to the optimists who think that they should persist higher and they may very well in the short term. But in the intermediate to long term, uh, the, the market will apply a reasonable outlook on, on future value and, um, and the realists will be glad that they uh, fed the ducks when they were quacking, so to speak. Next. Um, the ask me anything questions. First off, I missed one last week when I was on vacation because, you know, this week I'm home. I have uh, four or five screens in front of me so I can see it all. I was working off a laptop last week, so I missed the ask me anything question. But the question was ah, from uh, Ben, if approximately 90% of stock options expire worthless, why are the markets up to up the these last several days going into today's options expiration that was friday in light of the very low put call ratio um so i answered ben uh so ben thanks for the question uh the answer to your question is 90 percent of the option 90 percent of options expire worthless for three reasons and these are important to remember number one uh, more often than not not enough time is purchased for the move to play out People overestimate what can happen in the short term and they underestimate what can happen in the long term. Number two, uh, people buy lottery tickets way too far out of the money and they don't have a basis for a catalyst to change and move things that dramatically. And uh, that's what the sellers are betting on. And 90% of the time they're right. The 10% of the time they're not, they, you know, they can lose a lot of money and the, the lottery ticket purchaser can make a lot of money. And third is the purchase is made when implied volatility is too high. So oftentimes uh, people will purchase options after a huge move. Either the you know, uh, stock has crashed and they're buying calls and they think they're getting them cheap, but they're actually tremendously expensive because the recent move 
you have to pay that huge premium because volatility has increased. And even if you do get a, a huge reversion move over the following few months, uh, you had to work through so much of that extra premium that you paid in terms of implied volatility. The best time to buy options is when the stock is very, 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 very quiet. No one's interested and implied volatility is below their its recent average or historic average. Um, and you have some reason to view either A, in the intermediate term, something's going to change to move that from a sleepy stock back to an active stock and in the direction that you're looking for. Um, or B, it's just low implied volatility and you can buy a lot of time for a very low cost and it will trend in the direction that, that you're anticipating. So I uh, hope that helps to Ben. And for this week's question, uh, this is going to tie in a lot of what we're talking about with um, John. Uh, actually, this is his second Ask Me Anything as well. He owns the, the newspaper group in Ohio and he said with the upcoming change in the makeup of the Dow, Salesforce, then Biotech, Amgen, and manufacturing heavyweight Honeywell are being added, and Exxon, Pfizer, and defense company Raytheon are being removed. It seems to me you were bullish on the ones being removed. Are you still bullish? Why or why not? Uh, great question. When the facts change, you can change your minds. The good news is the facts haven't changed. The Dow is, as I said, a symbolic index. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, historically, the ones that are put in underperform the ones that were taken out in the, in the next 12 months by a small margin. So it's not statistically significant, but it's, it's not relevant to our thesis. You know, if they were the top five weights in the S&P 500, I'd be a little bit concerned, uh, or the top three weights, but there were low weights in the Dow, which very little money is indexed to. So it it's really meaningless other than symbolism. Um, now let's let's actually work this out though. Let's address um, let's address John's question here. So I want to bring up this chart from Daily Caller uh, or Daily Shot, the DailyShot.com. I think that this, uh, I think the Wall Street Journal owns them. You can look them up on. Um, Look them up on Twitter. I think their handle is at Soberlook or just type in Daily Caller or whatever. But they put this chart of the US ISM versus the S&P Industrials relative performance. What is S&P Industrials relative performance? It's basically just a ratio chart of how the industrial sector performs relative to the S&P 500. So... Um, So what you're seeing in this chart, and, and what is ISM? So the US ISM Purchasing Managers Index, Institute of Supply Management is a report on business, is based on data compiled from monthly replies to questions asked of purchasing and supply executives in over 400 industrial companies. So it, uh, it includes new orders, backlog of orders, new export orders, imports, production, supplier deliveries, inventories, customer inventories, et cetera. Basically, and here you can see the numbers going all the way back to the 70s. It troughs uh, like you saw in 1970 and then it peaked in 72 and then it troughed in uh, 74, it looks like. Anyway, we won't go through that. So we've just had a recent huge trough in ISM. You can see it on the ISM and you can see it here in this chart from the 
dailyshot.com. And that's the red line is the USISM. It's just a measure of manufacturing health. And what we're seeing here is that it has recovered, and you're also seeing it here. It's recovered from the, what is this? Uh, looks like 42, 43, which is contraction, to well over 50, which is expansion. It's now up to 50. Last read was 54 beat expectations on August 3rd. Um, so it's back in expansion. That's the good news is the ISM has recovered, so the underlying economic data, but the performance of the industrial stocks and industrial sector, speaking to John's question, ask me anything question, uh, as it relates to Raytheon and Honeywell, um, have not yet performed. So if you look historically, however, this is a common occurrence. If you see in 2000, mid-2009, the ISM got well ahead of the industrial's performance relative to the Dow, um, and this, this cycle repeats. So let's just take a look at historically what happens. Here is the longer-term monthly chart I put together, the XLI, which is the industrial's ETF relative to the SPY performance, and as you can see, which is reflected in this chart from dailyshop.com, um, this ratio is at a dramatic extreme, even lower than the 2009 recession and uh, uh, almost down to the 2000 recession. And if you recall, in those periods, particularly 2000, industrials were left for dead. You couldn't give them away and everyone wanted tech, you know, uh, history rhymes doesn't necessarily repeat, but rhymes. And then what, what I have in the background here is because he asked about Raytheon uh, as part of the industrial complex, it's a defense stock, which we've been pounding the table on defense stocks because of their low valuation, because they've lagged behind. If you missed the rally, you could still get, find value. We've been talking about that in recent weeks. So what basically happened the last time we were down at these ratios is the ITA, which is the aerospace and defense sector, which includes Raytheon, General Dynamics, Boeing, et cetera, uh, increased 300% after getting down to levels like this over the following years. And here we are again at these levels and it's just starting to come out, but it's again, uh, if you look at industrials as a whole, hasn't really started to catch up to the underlying economic data. And this is a coiled spring. So to answer your question, um, uh, I am still bullish as hell on these laggard uh, groups. I love the defense stocks. I love, um, you know, the top components in the ITA. Um, you know, Ray Raytheon certainly a good one. I, I would just buy a basket and benefit. If you've missed this rally, that's where you can still find tremendous amount of value. That's my opinion. Do your own homework. I don't know your investing situation, etc. Talk to your financial advisor, but... Um, uh, this is a huge, huge opportunity, and it has nothing to do with which stocks they put in a symbolic 124-year-old price-weighted index, which is irrelevant, that, that weights stocks by how high their price is, which is another reason that they had to choose Salesforce relative to some better choices, um, uh, relative to the S&P, which is cap-weighted, which, which is very, very relevant because uh, trillions of dollars are indexed to it. Uh, this not only applies to industrials, which John asked about. Um, so he referenced uh, 
Salesforce replace, replacing Exxon. Um, let's take a look at the energy ETF XLE relative to the S&P 500 performance. Uh, we got down to levels prior to the pandemic uh, that were equivalent to the 2002-2003 period, which was the last huge energy recession um, in the country, which preceded the biggest five-year run in energy and energy stocks and commodities and emerging markets that we've seen in a generation. And I think we're setting up for the exact same thing to happen. Now, as you can see here, it bounced around from 2001 to 2003. So it was a two-year bottoming process. We were kind of doing that before the pandemic and then we fell off a cliff when demand just dried up. It's coming back. We're seeing it in the weekly draws, which we'll talk about later in this call. But what I put in the background here because he asked about the stock was uh, ExxonMobil. And you can see when the general energy sector stocks were trading dramatically this underperform, uh, underperforming this dramatically relative to the S&P &P 500. What happened next? You had multi-year long, long leg rallies in Exxon stock. And I think that that represents a value as well for the long term. If you're you know, a day trader, or you need to make your millions over the next two months. This, this is not the podcast for you. But if you want to you know, build a tremendous uh, um, value over time, uh, these are the type of things that that you look at. Um, and then financials, which we're going to talk about, which we've talked about as well. Uh, since I was pulling out these long-term ratio charts, I figured I'd pull out financials. And if you look at the last time we got down to such a low performance of financials relative to the S&P 500, um, you were in 2009, early 2009, and you had multiple 100% rally for the following 10 years. We've gotten that to the 2009 lows of uh, bank underperformance relative to the S&P 500. It's starting to recover here. The XLF is the uh, black line in the background. It's, it's starting to recover, but again, that's where there's huge amounts of value for those who missed the 50% rally in the general indices uh, to take advantage for the long term. And as you can see, it's you know never a straight line up. We had the same type of thing in 2011. You know, it comes up slowly and then, you know, it retraces and then you get these multiple hundred percent rallies over time. And I think we're setting up to the exact same situation in uh, right now. So uh, it just gives you perspective. These are both great questions. And to answer your question, John, still very, very bullish on these laggard uh, sectors. And I think that's where the bulk of the opportunity is going to be in the next 18 months, which is the early part of a new cycle. Historically, cyclicals outperform coming out of recessions when the growth levels are high coming off a low baseline, economic growth levels. And when I was talking about nominal GDP growth of six and a half percent, because we've had 25 percent uh, M2 growth since March, and usually you get about a fourth translates into nominal GDP growth. Um, these are the names that are going to crush it. And it certainly didn't hurt to have the Fed say we're going to keep the low end short forever, and uh, and the long end uh, they're all, they're purchasing uh, 80 billion a month, and that's not necessarily out on the longest end of the curve either. So you're already starting to see a steepening of the yield curve, which is tremendously helpful 
for banks. And we'll just look at charts of that uh, towards the end of this episode. Um, okay, now on to the article of the week. And that is, okay, here we are. The Stevie Wonder Faith Stock Market and Sentiment Results. And the, for those of you listening, there's a picture of a flying pig from the, mov from the movie Sing. And we use this song because Stevie Wonder recorded with Ariana Grande in 2016 um, for the musical animated film Sing, uh, the song Faith. And uh, I know this because I have six and eight-year-old daughters and they've watched it probably a couple dozen times on Netflix. I think it's a Netflix original. Um, and the lyrics from the song is uh, that were salient for this week's stock market with the, the tremendous run we're having is, I got faith in you, baby. I got faith in you now. And you've been such a good friend of me. Know that I love you somehow. I met you. Hallelujah. I got faith. And I think with some of these, particularly some of the tech stocks that have had these monster runs, uh, like Apple, like uh, Tesla, I, I think this is the song they're all singing. And uh, we don't want to um, spoil their party in the short term, but we are going to talk about arithmetic and uh, math in this episode and kind of get a sense of how things might look in the intermediate term. Uh, last week, we talked about the Dickensian tale of two markets. I stand corrected. It was not Dickensonian. It is Dickensian um, tale of two markets where you have one group that are run well ahead of themselves, uh, tech and growth, and the laggard cyclicals that represent the value moving forward. So when people say we're in a bubble or it's toppy, I say, what, the, the general market? Okay, well, that's heavily weighted to five stocks. If you look under the surface, the vast majority aren't don't look bubbly. And if you look at valuations and prospects, uh, there's tremendous opportunity. So while there might be some froth in a handful of names, uh, there's opportunity and that's what we're going to focus on and we're not going to talk about you know calling tops or uh, Shorting particular names on valuation. That's you know uh, They can keep running in the short term But what we are going to focus on is where can you still find value and take advantage? Uh, in what I believe is a secular bull market. I think this represents what we saw this reset in 2020 <laughs> is a similar reset that we saw in the uh, 1987 uh, correction, 30 some odd correction due to portfolio insurance. And uh, that was just a major correction in a long-term secular bull. The demographics are similar. You had uh, uh, baby boomer housing formation and um, family formation in the early 80s that set the stage for 20 year run. And now you've got 85 million millennials, which are larger than the boomers that were more delayed in getting their family start. But you saw the housing formation uh, and housing starts trend trending upward prior to COVID. It's dramatically accelerated it uh, in the last uh, few months. And it's interesting. I was talking about Connecticut uh, housing depression the last 10 years. A friend of mine is in the real estate business here in town and he just listed a house. It's like a small house, a uh, regular house for, it was like a million fifty thousand. And 
Um, I was looking at the listing and I said, wow, this is unbelievable. The last time the house sold was 2003 for $50,000 more. So it sold for 1.1 million. It's just a simple house. Um, and it's being listed for 1,050,000 1, and it'll probably sell at ask or, or maybe even a little bit of a bidding war because the markets got, got hot. But um, talk about, you know, 17 years with no effective change in price. And if they had tried to sell it a year ago, they'd be lucky if they got 750,000. So it goes to show you the pent up demand. And yeah, I think, you know, there are some assets that have some room for price appreciation over time because they've done effectively nothing for 20 some, you know, 10 to 20 years in, in some housing markets in particular, in commodities for certain. Um, I think you're going to see uh, prices start to normalize as a function of the needed policy required to get uh, get us back to full employment, get us back to economic growth, and um, and also a function of the demography of 85 million millennials starting families and, and having that long-term secular boom. This was a pause that refreshes in the middle of that, and you want to be positioned for the next leg up. And where do you take advantage? You take advantage in what hasn't yet priced in a considerable amount of future gains, but what is actually underpricing the growth that's coming as we get the treatment or vaccine and as all of this stimulus aid and liquidity, which has been authorized to close to $10 trillion to fill a $1.2 trillion problem, 6% shortfall in GDP 2020 is about $1.2 $10 trillion authorized already. We are going to boom as people re return back to normalcy. So, um, so that was that. We covered the TV spots that explained it. Now, I wanted to contrast. I didn't want to just talk about this abstract value versus growth and stuff that's you know people talk about. So I just decided to choose the most loved stock in the S&P 500 and the most hated stock in the S&P 500. The most loved stock is Apple. The most hated stock is Wells Fargo. Um, and by taking a longer term view, we can see that this unusual divergence between Wells Fargo, which if you're watching the video cast, it's the red and black line here, and Apple, which is the solid black line here, this divergence has only happened four times in the past 20 years. And what is the divergence? It means that Wells Fargo is crashing while Apple is rallying, okay? So nothing to do with the general market, it's just Wells Fargo's crashing while Apple is rallying. It's happened four times. And um, in 2000, the crash in Wells Fargo was about 38%. In 2010, it was 32.5%. In 2011, it was 33.5%. And this year, it was 55%. So uh, that's the bad news. The good news is that uh, in all instances, it immediately inflected. And we had a bigger crash in... Um, 2009, uh, well, more than 55%. I think it was closer to 75%, and it recovered just as quickly. But I didn't cite that because Apple was also going down at that time. Everything was going down at that time. So uh, it didn't apply to this model, but the recoveries that we're going to talk about certainly did. So um, 
you, you know, you can't keep a good man down. That's that's the case with Wells Fargo, you know, good man or good good woman down for, for very long. It has a tendency to rip right back up to in what we're going to talk about is book value. And it certainly did that in 2009. Um, in the case of those instances where there was the divergence between Apple, uh, in 2000, I said it crashed uh, 38%. It rallied back 54% the next six weeks. Uh, in 2010, it rallied back 47% in the next 15 weeks. In 2011, it rallied back 49.76% in the next 16 weeks. And in 2020, we're going to find out hopefully soon. Uh, and if it's anything like 2009, for instance, uh, you know, you could see a 75% rally back to book very, very quickly. What's going to be the catalyst? It's probably going to be science at this point. Uh, once we have certainty that people are going back to work, the market's going to start to figure out what this stimulus means to growth and how 25% increase in money supply is more than going to offset all the expected uh, um, short-term rise in consumer defaults, small business defaults, etc. And uh, th these type of stocks are going to rip. And once they're back over book and they're up 75, 80%, then you're going to see everyone going on TV saying, we really like financials here. And, uh, and you'll have missed uh, the biggest part of the rally. Um, uh, but that's okay. So... Uh, some, you know, look, I mean, it's the biggest opportunities are when there's the greatest fear and the greatest irrationality. I mean, if you have some sincere thesis as to why Wells Fargo would cease to exist because of fintech or whatever your thesis is, then, you know, this is not the right uh, stock or sector for you. But, you know, we've seen this over and over before. And if you think they're going to just sit back and uh, not invest in tech. They're, they're all investing hugely in tech and they'll either buy the fast FinTech companies or they'll um, copy them and crush them or uh, the pie is big enough for everyone is really what it comes down to. But um, uh, so, so that's what, what happened in terms of the recovery. And I wanted to also talk about kind of what's happening in terms of the past two months the 2021 EPS estimates for Apple have risen 4.4%, while the price of the stock has appreciated 49.7%. So that, that's a big divergence. Those things usually get resolved over time. Uh, either earnings have to go up dramatically or price has to come down. Um, and it, you'd say, well, of course, it's gone up 49% in the last two months because you had the rally off the bottom. The big part of the rally off the bottom was you know, March through May. So the last two months would have been uh, June and July. Most of the stock market rally was in the rearview mirror at that point. But even so, with estimates being up 4.4% in the last 60 days, the stock is still up 76% year to date. So um, there's a huge divergence between earnings power and price appreciation. And we're going to talk about, you're going to say, well, there should be multiple expansion because rates are low, but we're going to talk about the realm of what would be re realistic normally, um, multiple expansion relative to uh, something that's just outside the realm of any historical precedent. Uh, conversely, uh, Wells Fargo uh, estimates have come down 20%, 21%, and the stock has declined 4%. It's down 52% year to date. 
and um, so uh, that's, a, that's a big difference. So one's overshot in price on the downside relative to earnings estimates, one's overshot in price to the upside relative to earnings estimates, uh, both are aberrations. This is an apples to oranges comparison, no, you know, pun, in, I, I guess, pun intended with uh, Apple. Um, but I want to talk about how they're trading relative to historic metrics. So uh, over the past 10 years, Wells Fargo's traded between a 5.9% discount to book value at the low end to a 75.3% premium to book value on the high end. Right now, Wells Fargo trades at a 37.63% discount to book. So the only other time we saw this type of discount was during the great financial crisis in 2009, when it briefly traded at a 60% discount to book value for about a week, <laughs> and then subsequently rebounded to 100% of book value within the next two months. So I do think this is an overshoot. I do think the market is just biding time, waiting for that catalyst. I think Thursday was part of the catalyst with the Fed speech, committing to keeping the short end low, committed to asset purchases, and you're seeing the long end start to, to uh, come out a bit. 10-year uh, yield and 30-year yield have risen uh, pretty materially in the last week, which that increases net interest margin for banks. So that's a, another good thing for banks. Um, this discount in Wells Fargo starkly contrasts to the premium on historic metrics for Apple. So obviously a tech company doesn't trade on book value like a bank does because they're in a different business. They trade on earnings. So the, um, uh, you know, for newer companies that don't have earnings, um, they trade on expected future earnings, but for an established company like Apple, they trade out a multiple to earnings. And the average PE multiple on earnings since 2004 has been 16 times earnings for Apple. If you apply the average multiple to earnings, uh, current year earnings, you get $207. It traded up to 515 this week. If you apply that same average multiple to forward earnings, which is what I would look at, you're looking at a $250 um, price relative to uh, it trading up to 515 earlier this week. If you give it a, um, even if you bump it up, um, you know, a few multiples based on growth, it's still, you know, you're looking at right here, uh, at the $515 price implied a 39.7 times earnings multiple on 2020 earnings relative to the historic uh, multiple of 16 times uh, or a 33.18 times multiple on 2021 earnings. And this compares to the S&P 500, which is trading at a 21 times multiple of 2021 consensus earnings. So it's still, you know, it's dramatically above anything you've ever seen. And the highest multiple that Apple has ever traded at in the past 10 years was 24.6 times current year. We're trading at a multiple that's 61% higher than it has ever been at its highest which would potentially make sense if earnings growth was going to be higher than it's ever been in history. Uh, but that's not going to be the case with a $2 tr trillion market cap and the law of large numbers. 
that makes it very improbable. So um, I'm not making a short case for Apple. I think that's you know that's that's not what we're doing here. And if I, it's it's just not what I do. That's not my my game. Um, I you know I have disclosed that we um, have been buying Wells Fargo. We added a bunch this week, and we love this story. So, um, but uh, as far as Apple, Apple would be in my trim bucket, you know, not not uh, not in my uh, press bucket. So, um, so that kind of shows the contrast of extremes on both sides. And if you compare that to the lowest multiple Apple's ever traded at in the last ten years, which is nine point two five times current year, that would put the price at one hundred and nineteen dollars. And that's a far cry from the 515 print we saw this week of 39.7 times earnings. So we're at a unique time in history. Um, if Wells Fargo was trading at its peak historic multiple of 1.75 times book, you'd have a $67 stock today. On the flip side, if Apple was trading to its trough historic multiple of 9.5 times current year earnings, you'd have a $119 stock. Since neither of these full reversions is realistic, uh, in the near term, we can only think in terms of probabilities. And over time, a reversion to the mean, the middle range of respective multiples, is certainly realistic. That would imply 1.25 times book for Wells Fargo, which would give you a $48 stock. Uh, it would also imply 16 times current year for Apple, which would get you to, uh, um, you know, in 2021, would get you to 250 bucks. You probably get a little more premium than that just because everyone's excited about the stock. But, you know, 515 seems to have a lot priced in uh, and then some. So while Apple is a spectacular company, I said the holders of these aberrational multiples are singing Stevie Wonder's lyrics. I got faith in you, baby. I got faith in you now. And you've been such a good friend of me that I love you somehow, I met you, hallelujah, I got faith. Uh, so I think there's a little bit of that. You know, Apple's made a lot of people a lot of money over the years. And, um, you know, for, for people that uh, are long-term investors, if you got to move back down to 400 or 350 in the next year or, or six or 12 months, uh, you'd probably hold it because, you know, if you look 10 years out, it's probably $1,000 plus. Uh, it's just the growth rate might be slower or they might spin off different types of businesses to return capital to shareholders or uh, dividend out or buy something. So there are a lot of ways that they can create value uh, for shareholders. Um, uh, but I think in the short term, a lot of that value is is priced in. So I'm all for faith, but the math does not support further multiple expansion in the intermediate term. It can certainly persist in the short term, like I said, but it's unlikely for an extended period of time. And uh, as I put in italics, I can't put it any more diplomatically than that. <laughs> so take it for what it's worth. On the flip side, uh, Wells Fargo may be suppressed temporarily at these levels, but over time it will revert back to the mean as it has repeatedly over decades of business cycles, which we covered earlier, and patient holders will be handsomely rewarded in our view. That's an opinion. Do your own homework. Um, for, oh, for those of you listening to the podcast, it'll cut off in five minutes. Uh, go to hedgefundtips.com and just listen to the video cast. You can fast forward to 60 minutes on the video cast. It's word for word the same thing and just watch the last bit on the video cast. We do have a lot to cover this week because uh, a lot of good things are happening. So um, I learned a saying from... Uh, 
from a great mentor in my early 20s. He said, no pressure, no diamonds. <laughs> diamonds are formed because carbon is set under extreme pressure in the earth. Without pressure, it would just be carbon or maybe it would turn to graphite. And the greatest investments are made when they're, they're extremely un unpopular, but they have to be good businesses, durable, high quality, long-term businesses, not businesses that are going out of business, businesses that just are in a part of the cycle when no one wants them and they will revert back to normal over time. And that's exactly what we're talking about in our view with Wells Fargo. And there's huge pressure when you're buying what's unpopular because the pressure is to buy more of what is popular. Uh, but sooner or later, the math kicks in and that's where fortunes are made. And while it seems so obvious in the rear view mirror, it's never obvious in the middle of the race. I'm hoping this will shed some light on it, on things. And the pressure is on and the diamonds will come. It's just a matter of time. So in summary, here's what you have to believe. In order to be short Wells Fargo at these levels, because there are obviously people that are selling and or short for it to be priced at this level um, based on historical multiples, you have to truly believe that book value is gonna be cut in half over the next year. And if you believe that the what's implicit in, in Wells Fargo's book value being cut in half from here is that we're going into a global long-term depression. Uh, and if you believe that, then God bless you. We're not in that camp by any stretch of the imagination. And even if you look at 2009, where you did have a balance sheet recession, uh, book value remained relatively steady even through all those defaults and write downs. So in 2007, it was $14 a share. 2008, it was 16. It even rose to $19 a share in 2009, $22. So it continued to rise through that cycle. And I think we're gonna see the same thing here, even if we have a short-term temporary dip of a buck uh, uh, per share in book value retreat, we'll be back up to $41, $42 um, book value by next year. And probably a lot higher. I think they've over-reserved for uh, what, what's going to take place. But leaving that aside and the money they're going to make from the yield curve steepening and some of the other things that they're um, uh, privy to. So, so that's what you'd have to believe to uh, be selling or shorting Wells Fargo. You'd have to really believe we're going into a depression, uh, which I think is a bad bet. Don't fight the Fed and, and don't fight science. And the second thing is to be long, conversely, to be long Apple at these levels based on historic multiples, you have to truly believe 2021 earnings are going to come in twice as much as consensus estimates, in my view. So in order for it to be reasonably priced here, you have to believe they're going to do twice as good as what analysts are anticipating. And maybe you have some edge that this 5G cycle is going to be twice as good as the best 20 analysts on the street that do this full-time uh, think it's going to be, in which case then you definitely want to continue long here at $515. But if you think it's going to be just as good as people think, which they think it's going to be great, uh, then it, then a lot of that's priced in today. So I, I wouldn't bet on the depression and I wouldn't bet on uh, Apple's earnings coming in two times better than consensus either. So I can hear it now, Wells Fargo will begin to outperform Apple on a relative basis when pigs fly. That's why I chose the flying pig picture for the article. Um, and uh, from the movie Sing, I had uh, it had a flying pig. So stay tuned on that front. Shifting gears to the shorter term view for the general market. 
Uh, there's still some skepticism, but uh, optimism is moving up. The bullish percent moved up to 32%. Caution is ger generally warranted when you have 40% bullish. You can see the chart below. However, the fear and greed index did climb to 75. The extreme euphoric is between 80 and 100. So for some pockets of euphoria, it's a smart time to start trimming. And you can choose what those are. This shows the long-term view of the fear and greed. And National Association of Active Investment Managers is at an extreme over 